0: Let me just start with um, a little bit of maybe where you were last, this last week and where I was. I, VBS was uh, was fun. It was my first year I actually volunteered to do something, and, and I realized afterwards that I got most of the blessing out of the whole thing. I mean, it was just fun. Um, I got to work with Chris out, uh, Chris Ackerman out in, the, um, out in the blacktop doing games with kids, and these kids are just so full of life, you know? They're running with cups of water, throwing water at each other, and just... There's so much vitality, and they come in this room, and they're just, like the, there's this light that comes on in this room, and it's just so amazing to see. You know? it's, just, it's amazing to just even taste a little bit of it, and it makes you want to come back for more. Well, that was part of our week, and then you know, I don't have to tell you some of the things that have uh, unfolded in our, our country and, and are um, really uh, unprecedented and um, the highest courts in our land have made some decisions that are contrary to the design with which God has uh, instructed creation to be ordered. And, and that, of course, comes with a level of sadness. I, I know it does for me, I see it, and I'm just sad for our world. I'm sad for our country. Um, but I don't know that any of us were surprised by, by those things, because we've felt the current pushing in this direction for years. and it's just a matter of time before the, you know these bands of, of law. Um, rooted in the Judeo-Christian faith, were to break under the pressure of of changing morality. It, is, it was bound to happen at some point or another. And um, I was just reminded this week of the Lord saying to me that I felt I needed to say to you by way of entry into this text that that we're not supposed to be anxious or fearful or troubled. That's what he'd say to us. Um, in many respects, what's happening is just the natural outworking of a culture that is looking for a God alternative. Um, kind of turned away, and they're, they're, they're grab, grasping at things to, to fill the hole. I mean, in the essence, our world is, is trying to save itself, and not in the Christian sense of save, but in the sense of we feel the fracture within, and so they're trying to change things in order to make themselves feel fixed. So really, this is just a natural outworking of, of the world trying to save itself, and, and so it shouldn't surprise us. Um, but at the same time, we know from the scripture that as as much as they try to fill the cup um, of life by redefining things or, or changing things or moving boundary lines, the bottom line is the cup still remains empty, only now it's stained with guilt. And that, of course, is, is what's sad. But it's important to remember and take Confidence in the simple fact that the Lord said that gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And uh, you realize the followers of Jesus have lived under um, imperial monarchies. They have lived in, uh, under Buddhist regimes and uh, Islamic regimes, under capitalism and socialism and fascism and communism. And, and I'll tell you what, the followers of Jesus just keep on chugging along. And you know what? The thing, fact of the matter is, is that our, our, our goal is the same regardless of times, cultures, or changes. And that is, we exist to live out and to speak out the simple truth that there is only one who saves, only one who satisfies. And that's Jesus. That's a simple point. And it's a point that we have to come back to over and over and over again, not just at the beginning of the Christian life when we bow the knee and say, Jesus, I need you to save me, but at times when on this journey of life we step off the road, and, um, and we do. I've stepped off the path a number of times in my life, and, and there's still jaded motives in me at times where I know that this may have been a good work, but it, was, it had a sense of fallenness to it, too. So I have to confess my good work with wrong motives. So we still wander off. And we come to David's story, and David's, you know, a man after God's own heart, and, and he's... Um, you know, experienced so much, which I won't go into, but he just, he's a believer. He's a, he's a godly man. He's chosen and blessed. And and yet, you know, he reached across subtle compromise of life, reached over, and took a woman that wasn't his and committed adultery and then conspiracy and then murder. And And at the very end of chapter 11, it says that the Lord was displeased with David. So here's this man who's walking, uh, you know, the straight and narrow, if you will, and he just takes this massive slide down. I mean, he fell from grace, and he fell deep, and he fell hard. And the kind of the question, if we were reading this for the first time, is like, well, is the Lord going to kick David to the curb? Is Okay, he's fallen from grace, but has he fallen beyond grace? And... What's the process by which a person can be returned and restored to their relationship with the Lord? What's the way back onto the path? Those are kind of the the questions. And as I said, starting out, this is really our story um, of 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 um, our slide and then God's process of grace and, and restoration. And I find this chapter, chapter 12, to be incredibly good news. So we, we left David last week um, kind of in the cocoon of his own self-deception, his own guilt. Um, The woman that he committed adultery with, Bathsheba, we're told that they conceived, of course, and by the time chapter 12 opens up, they've had a child. And the child may be a number of months or years old. So the idea is that David has been in a state of shame and guilt and unrepentance, hiding everything for a number of months, which ate away at the inside of his soul. And that's what happens to the, to the true follower of the Lord. When you enter into a time of unrepentant, walking off the right way, it just tears you up inside. He wrote about it in Psalm 32 when he says, for when I kept silent; my bones wasted away within me from my groaning all day long, um, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me, so that my strength was gone. I mean, that's that's the feeling he had in these months and perhaps a year or more um, of of an unrepentant state. But the great thing is, the story of chapter twelve opens up with God pursuing. Um, that's how it opens up the very first line, is a reminder that God is the one who pursues the fallen. He's not going to let David stay in his state of sinful isolation. It says that, and the Lord um, sent Nathan to David. The Lord sending a messenger. He's sending a prophet after his wayward kid. And, you know, that's consistent with the heart of God towards his people all the way through the scripture. You know, Adam and Eve did some... Really bad things that caused all, a lot of damage to the rest of us. Um, and what did it say the Lord did? He went and he sought them. That the Lord sought out Abraham, who was an idolater living in the land of, 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 of Ur. Or after Peter denied Jesus, we're told that, that, um, that Jesus initiated a plan to bring him back. I mean, that's what God does. He pursues the fallen. He pursues his own. And that's, in many respects, the whole story of the Bible, is God's pursuit of sinful, fallen man summed up by Jesus is i came to seek and to save the lost that's god taking the initiative that's god pursuing that's god coming down and that's that's the story of redemption the story of the bible is not about us discovering and finding god it's rather god seeking us and finding us it's grace and it's one of the things we learn about god's grace and you, if you picture david's life coming down here david or the lord sends somebody to meet him down here, um, that grace pursues the fallen man. He's going to send somebody to where David is, locked in this cocoon of guilt. And God does the same thing in your and I life, your and my life. Um, You know, if, if we're truly a follower of Christ, he never lets us go. And if we're one of his own, he hunts us down until he turns our head back around and we're like, thank you for pursuing me. Thank you for pursuing me. I know I look back in my life and like I said, the times when I've wandered off almost invariably, I will say invariably, because I'm still here, is that God sent someone or a book or a speaker to meet me at that moment, Um, like friend Walter that I had when I was in my 20s, and he came to me, and I remember sitting at my parents' kitchen table, and he says, Deckard, what are you doing? You say you trust in Jesus, but you're doing this. Because I was in kind of this cocoon of my own justified sin. And that little simple conversation was something that turned me back to the path and I look back down, I'm like, Lord, thank you for not just kicking me to the curb and thanks for coming after me. And he's a father who hunts down his children because he loves them. That's, that's what grace does. And that's one of the things we learned at the outset of this story of chapter 12 is that, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. That's step one. But Nathan is going to come, the prophet is going to come to David with a very express purpose. And that is, um, in, in use of a, An analogy, he's going to put a mirror up before David's face to say, this is what you've done and who you are. To show him the ugliness in his soul and show him the ugliness of his life. Not for the sake of shaming him, but for the sake of breaking him and bringing him back. Um, Teaching us that God's grace, and this is a gracious act, that God's grace brings darkness, the darkness of our sin to light. This is a painful process, but it's a necessary process for us to be healed and be restored. As I said, David's story is our story. God has done the same thing to every true believer. He's brought us to a sense of our own guilt, brought us to a sense of our own sin. And even after we've come to faith, he does that. He's he's faithful to pursue us, faithful to show us. So Nathan comes to, to King David, who's sealed up in his little hidden conspiracy and scandal, and, and, um, and Nathan speaks to him in an indirect and rather crafty or artful way. That is, he doesn't launch a frontal attack against David's sin. He kind of wedges his way through the side door um, so that David will unwittingly and unknowingly condemn himself. So the, the prophet comes to him and it says, says this basic parable, like Jesus would use, um, And I'm just going to paraphrase for time. He he comes to David and he says, hey, there's a rich man and a poor man in a city. And the rich man had all kinds of herds and flocks, you know, sheep and goats. and He's a rich man. But there's a poor man. He had one lamb. Um, That one lamb he bought with his own money. And that lamb he raised like one of his kids. He loved that lamb so much, and this will put pet lovers, at you know, off the charts, but it's like, you know, he let this, this, this animal eat from his plate and drink from his cup, and it says that he will hold it in his bosom. It's like cuddling with this lamb, and treated it like a child. You know, anybody who's had a family pet who knows that there's a pet who's like kind of like a child, that's, that's the picture that he, that, he, that he paints. So here's this poor man who has his lamb that he absolutely dotes on and loves, and there's a rich man. And the rich man has a traveler come in from out of town. And wants to feed the traveler. So instead of taking one of his own um, sheep or, or or goats from the many, he takes this this poor man's single, solitary, loved, beloved lamb, and he throws it on the barbecue and kills it and feeds the feeds the uh, the, the, the the traveler. Well, David hears this and he assumes that it's true, like this is really happening. And the text tells us that he's absolutely enraged. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Death sentence for cooking somebody else's lamb. Um, and he, he, he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. As he's in an absolute rage and in his rage distorts justice. Nobody deserves capital punishment for taking somebody else's lamb. Um, just once again a sign I'll, some of you pet lovers might think that it's capital punishment <laughs> but that, that, that he's one of the things sin does to our soul and to our mind is it, it makes us irrational and actually makes us dumb because David is now blind to the fact that he's committed a greater injustice and he's completely oblivious to it he is utterly blind that's what sin does it just you can't think right when you're living in it you can't make. North, south, you just don't know where you're at. You don't think correctly. Well, you can sense in this that David is now, this man deserves to die. It's, it's, it's very artful. Uh, you know, Nathan the prophet basically has taken one of those bear traps and, and, you know, pushed it open and then told David the story and David, like, sticks his leg in there. And then all of a sudden, Nathan um, says words which must have been just like a bullet through David's heart. Two words in Hebrew, four in English. You are the man. Whew. Just imagine the absolute horror of David realizing that he's the rich man who stole the man's beloved solitary lamb. Um, he has just uttered his own condemnation and his own death sentence. It's just, his, his sin is just brought to you are the man. But Nathan doesn't stop there he's going to go on, and now he's going to, you know, like a mirror when you wake up in the morning and you look absolutely horrific, you know, and you're like, I don't want to see that. Well, no, Nathan's going to go, no, you need to see more closely just what happened. Um, Again, God's gracious way of helping us to face what we've done graciously, because he goes on to say, thus says the Lord, now he's going to lay out the accusations of what he's done. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. This is all about God's gracious gifts to him. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house, and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would, have, I, I would add to you as much more. And as, I would have just given you more if you would have but asked for it. Verse 9, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah, that's murder, the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife, that's adultery, to be your wife, and have killed him, again, a second reference to murder, killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, this is actually pretty profound, the way in which the mirror is being pushed in David's face, because if you think about sin in two layers, like if you can imagine an onion with only two layers. I know it's tough, but an onion with two layers. And the outer layer is what we often see, which is um, how personal sin, whether it's adultery, lying, cheating, stealing, um, making something an idol that shouldn't be like family or, or whatever else, work, career, um, that if you can think of that outer layer is how our sinfulness, our self-centeredness, our selfishness hurts people. Now that's obviously emphasized in both the parable of the rich man taking this family pet and also it's mentioned here twice, you committed murder and you committed adultery. That's what sin does. It, it, it is it's the opposite of love. It absolutely breaks down relationships. It fragments the way God is in Himself and the way He created human and, human beings to be in community with each other. That's what it does. So that, but that's that's outer layer, you know. And many of us see that. We may live in a culture that makes fun of the word sin, but I haven't met a lot of people who have suffered as a victim of adultery who laughs at it, because sin is very real. It's very raw. Very painful. If I was Uriah's brother, I'd be darn ticked at David because it's real. It affects relationships. That's what it does. But that's the outer layer. And he points that out. You committed murder and adultery. But he gets to the center of the onion too, which we often don't really think about or take into consideration, which is at the center of the onion, David despised God himself. At the heart of sin is... is um, is an offense against the one who created you. I mean, in particular, David despised his grace. You can hear the Lord saying, I gave you everything and I would have given you more. You, you despised everything I've given you. You weren't satisfied with it. You just thought, you know what? If I have her, then I'll really live. You're trying to save yourself again or, or, or fill some lack with some illicit pleasure. You weren't great, grateful and content and, and thankful for all that I've given you. So you've despised my generosity. And then on top of that, and it says it right here, you despise the word of the Lord. I mean, of all of the over 600 commands in the Old Testament law, 10 were more important than any of the others. So they grouped them into the Ten Commandments. And those 10, two of the 10, were do not commit adultery, do not commit murder. And David understood these, and yet he, out of a passion, out of an enslaved passion, set aside the word of the Lord, which, by the way, the the instructions of the Lord are not abstract principles that God gives us to um, that we're supposed to abide by because they have no real value. It's just our duty to do it. No, they're intended to protect the, the, the integrity of the community itself, to protect the community from unlove. All of those things have to do with unloving actions of not honoring your parents or coveting or so forth and so on. So David set those good, wholesome Community-preserving, love-preserving commands aside, and decided he was going to do it his own way and, and of course, took the woman. And in that way, he despised the word of the Lord. So he despised the grace of the Lord, despised the word of the Lord, which in, in, in the end meant um, he despised the Lord who gave him everything. Now, maybe we don't really feel that, but I'll tell you what. If, if, um, if one of my kids came to me and said, you know what, Dad? Dad? Um, You're not giving me enough. The house isn't big enough. Um, You bought me an old clunker car. Didn't get me the Corvette I wanted. Um, You don't let me stay out as late as I want to every night. Um, You know what? Um, I need more. And I'm going to leave to find more. And I know that you told me that this lifestyle is harmful. But you know what? I think I know better how I'm supposed to live. As a father, that would utterly and completely break my heart. It would be personal. And the simple fact is, is that when you and I give ourselves over to a sinful lifestyle, um, we're doing just that. It's not just that we have this horizontal aspect of sin of hurting others that we love. But in the end, we despise the one who created us and has given us everything. We're living, breathing. Your heart is pumping right now because he's good. And it despises him when we willfully choose to go in opposite direction. That's kind of at the heart and the the core of, of David's sinfulness, which is why in his psalm of confession, Psalm 51, he says, against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. He knows at the deepest level, he has violated the generosity, the grace, the love, and the word of the Lord. Well, before we get to his response, it's important for us to see that the prophet goes ahead and then lays out a sentence now, these are going to be the consequences of you murdering and, and committing adultery. Um, and you're going to notice that the, the punishment fits the crime. That is, now therefore, the sword. He took Uriah's life with the sword, and now listen what the sword's going to do to him. Therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So you. You killed with the sword, now the sword's going to devour your family. It goes on in verse 11, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives. You committed adultery, and now listen to this. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them, over to, you, give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will, I will do this uh, thing before all Israel and before the sun. See, this is what you call the principle of sowing and reaping. You know, like in farming, you sow a single seed, it grows, and then it creates a multiplicity of seeds. David committed an act of murder, and out of it, a sword would come and begin to devour his family, which is going to happen in the chapters that follow. One act leads to um, kind of what you give out is coming back to you. What goes around comes around. And one act of adultery, now he says, your wives are going to be taken. And it's not going to be a private thing. It's going to be a public thing. You see? Um, the punishment is, is, the act was singular, and the repercussions are plural. Um, but that's the sowing and the reaping. This is a sentence that's going to affect his whole family and for generations to come. Well, he hears all this. David hears all this. And this is dark. You know, this is like the mirror. Whew. And then it says, David did only what he could do. Um, it says, "I have sinned." This is David. It's simple, it's short and yet deeply profound in what is not there. He says, "I, I have sinned against the Lord. He gets the core of the onion. Ultimately, this is a sin against Yahweh, who gave me everything and who gave me his good instructions and his good word, which I have wholeheartedly violated. I have sinned against the Lord. This is what the Bible calls uh, an act of repentance or confession. And um, the way in which David states this, I think, is um, noteworthy. Um, You notice he doesn't play the blame game at this point at all. He's not pointing fingers at anybody. Except himself. I have sinned against the Lord. I. You know how easy it would be for him to justify himself like Adam did in the garden? He could have said, yes, I, I, yes, I sinned against you, Lord. I committed adultery. But what in the heck was Bathsheba doing bathing herself, buck naked and beautiful on top of the house? She has a little piece to play in this thing too. Or why couldn't you, Lord, in your providence, have made her aesthetically challenged and plump? But you didn't. I mean, that's what happened in the garden is like kind of the added justifications. And, you know, that's, that's our world. It's like the reason I'm acting the way I'm acting and I'm choosing the way I'm choosing is because my parents got a divorce when I was little or I was abused when I was a child or, or any number of things. And any time our confession before the Lord has a but at the end of it means at some level we're still living in a justified state. It means your confession and your sinfulness is therefore conditioned upon another so it's not fully yours. He owns it completely. That's what repentance is before the Lord. It's saying, I did it. I own it. It's mine. I chose it. And it came out of an evil place in my heart. Yes, I lusted. Yes, I committed murder. I sinned. That's the kind of repentance we have to get back to, each of us. Because there's no other way to be restored to the Lord except through this, this doorway of repentance. Nobody's excluded from it. You know, if, 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 if you walk, if maybe you're like David, and you walk down the path of adultery, and you're sitting here, and you're like, yeah, I did that, and I destroyed my family. Well, what's the way back? Well, to recognize I own that sin. It's mine. Fully and completely, I was an adulterer. Uh, if, it's, if it's cheating on people, lying to people, or, or, or even worshiping something that in and of itself is good, like food, saying, I, I have a lust for food that, Lord, is, it makes me happier than worshiping you. I have sinned against you. We all have to come through that place of owning it completely. I have sinned. That's David's response, and amazingly enough, I, it's just so short. There's no elaboration. There's no explaining of the story. Um, Nathan goes on rapidly to say, um, "Say to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. All this terrible stuff, He's put it away. He separated it from your life. In other words, you're forgiven, and you're free again." And those words must have just been well. If you were in that situation, you'd just be like, really? Like, you can forgive someone who's done such things? Like, you can wipe out my debt? You can wipe out the red in my ledger? Now, some people get upset at this. They look at that, and they're like, man, I can't believe that the Lord just let them off that easy. Well, you know what? That's the scandal of, of grace, and that's how the gospel works. You know, and the very fact that we're upset at the fact that God forgives him, probably indicates we have a little bit of self-righteousness in us. Because all of the sons of Adam, every one of us, save Jesus, deserves to die. But, God in his grace says, I forgive you. Now check this out. Really important little piece here that just blows my mind. So he says forgiveness, right? Um, uh, The Lord has put away your sin from you. You shall not die. You deserve death. On two counts, murder and adultery, both are capital punish, uh, uh, punishments um, or sins, and um, punishable by death. But he goes on and says, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. It's like, you should hear a record, like, you know, needle go off the record at this point. It's like, wait a second. David gets to live but his son that was born or conceived in adultery, he gets to die. David is forgiven, but the son dies for the father's sin. Forgiveness, death. Now maybe it's reading a little bit too much New Testament into this, but... The whole flow of the Bible, in addition to all of the sacrifices in the temple, would lead me to conclude that wherever there's forgiveness of debt or forgiveness of sin, something dies. A lamb, a goat, a pigeon, turtle dove, whatever you could afford. In order for you to be forgiven of your sin, whatever it is, something must die. God masterfully built it into the very world in which we, physical world in which we live. You eat a salad, it's because plants gave their life. You eat a piece of steak, it's because an animal gave its life. Something dies so you can live. This son dies so that David can live. Now, does that sound familiar? That a, a thousand years from this event, the son of David, indeed, would bear the vile and disgusting consequences, guilt of his forefather David, and that he would stretch himself out and basically tell his father, take me, not them, let me be the fall guy. Jesus dies so that we can live. See, the, the, the Bible through and through tells us that grace to forgive is costly, it's immeasurably costly. We can live and be forgiven if another dies. And that's, of course, what, what God has done. Is He has willingly come down and he has borne our guilt and paid for it in full so that the father could say, you're forgiven because my son died. That's gospel. That's, that's how grace is working here in David. David lives because someone else would die and bear the curse of his guilt God's grace to forgive the repentant sinner is costly. Don't ever forget that it's costly. That's Bonhoeffer theology, you know, when he told us, do not believe that grace is cheap. Otherwise, you'll trivialize the gospel in your sin. Remember that it cost blood, it cost flesh. Someone had to breathe a last breath because so that you could be forgiven. Never forget the costliness of it. Never stop being grateful for the enormity of God's loving mercy poured out for you in the death of his son. Well, David's son does die. I'm going to cut this short, the son. He, he pleads with the Lord. He prays for the, with the Lord Fasts for seven days. Lord, please, just save my son. The one spoken of here, God's grace says no. But in that kind of the ashes of this ruin... You know, I mean, this has been a major downturn, ending with the death of his son because he sinned. It would be easy to think, as you and I often think, when you've blown it big time, and I would imagine that I talked to a lady after her service. She said, that was me. I blew it big time. Well, I just like David. It's easy in that state to think my life is in ruins and nothing good can come from this. You know? I know people like that. It's like I blew it so bad and it's like I'm maybe just maybe I'll eek by just being saved, you know, when I die. But there's there's nothing good. My life's in ruins and I have there's nothing that God can do with the, the ash heap. But check this out. This is the final scene of the story and tells us something else amazing about God's grace. Not only does God's grace pursue, you know, when we fall and bring our, you know, face to the mirror. By the way, you can't be restored unless there's a realization of the sinfulness of sin. You know, when we remain in our darkness. You, you, you can't see the stains. But when you're brought into the light, it's, it's, it's a horrific. But God brings us there so that we'll see it and and cast ourselves upon Him. You know, that's why He does it. It's restorative, and that God's grace to forgive. The repentant, the one who genuinely comes and says, I'm, I've done it, and I'm going to trust that you in your mercy will pay the cost, which God, of course, did. Um, then there's this last little piece. David's grieving the death of his, of, his, uh, of his boy. And there's this little, like, gem in this chapter. It says, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Next words. And the Lord loved him. Solomon, great wise king, whose name means peace, before he's even born, says the Lord loved him. And, verse 25, sent a message by Nathan. At the beginning of the chapter, Nathan comes with really bad news, a really ugly mirror. At the end, he comes with good news. This is what grace is going to do. It says, So he called his name Jedidiah. That's the name of Solomon, which in Hebrew means beloved of Yahweh. One of the greatest kings of Israel will come out of, out of this. I mean, do you, do you read this verse and it's just completely puzzling? Bathsheba's the one that he stole. Like, how could anything good come from this relationship? You know? It's like... There's no business anything happening with Bathsheba, just badness. But God's like, no, you know what, even in the middle of all this ruin and this relationship which was started on a completely evil plane, look what I'm going to do with this. And out of it comes the blessing of a son by the name of Solomon, beloved of the Lord. A reminder that, you know, one of the amazing things about God's grace is that he can take what we intend for evil... And bring good out of it. Now that doesn't hear me please. That does not mean that the consequences of sin or the reaping of what's been sown is eliminated. God can forgive us and still allow the consequences of our sin to unfold, which they will, in David's case, and in our case. A warning that, don't just think, well, you know, God will forgive me tomorrow, it won't make an effect. No, your sin is malignant. It's going to have negative, catastrophic consequences. But understand, at the same time, mysteriously, and I don't know how it works, in the middle of the ruin, God brings beauty out of ashes, and he brings goodness out of evil, a reminder that God does work all things. Together for the good of those who, are, who love him and are called according to his purpose. Reminding all of us in this room, you know, I don't know your past history. I know some of you. I've heard stories in, in some of my Edwards groups of people who have done terrible things. And it's easy to think, well, I've blown it and, you know, all right, I'm, I'm kind of like not really of benefit to the kingdom of God. To which, look at David's story. Listen, God can, amazingly enough, use things that you willfully done that were wrong, and he can bring good out of it. Only grace can do that. Only sovereign grace can do that. I've seen alcoholics repent and go on to minister to other alcoholics in ways they couldn't have had they not fallen. So just remember, there's, there still is purpose in life, even when you fall, because God has a way of bringing beauty out of ashes. That's grace, man. And, and you see, God comes down to where David is. He pursues David by grace, and that, by the way, was the last one. Um, you know, he brings God's grace brings his sin to light for the gracious purpose of restoring him. Um, God's grace to forgive, which is costly, and, of course, recognizing that God's grace even brings good out of evil. That's how good he is. That's how good God is. And so I, I pray this morning for you, for you, for us. You know, if you're living in the cocoon of your own sin, maybe, maybe um, the Lord is, is pursuing you and, and um, you just haven't recognized it. And it's time to embrace his word for you. It's like, I love you. Hello. Will you, will you raise your hands to me and say, yes, it was me. I, I have sinned against the Lord. And recognize that in his grace and loving kindness, he paid the price for your sin. And, complete, and believe it. And then know that God will use even the ruins of your life to accomplish good things. Because that's how good he is. And I think all of us can say, give thanks to the Lord. For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Lord, thank you for your goodness and kindness. I pray that you administer your truth to those who are here who may find themselves in the ruins of their life. And just a reminder to all of us that, Lord, you are gracious and there's no part of our salvation that we can say, I did that. It's, it's you pursuing and it's you forgiving and it's you paying the cost and it's you working good out of evil. And we just praise you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand and join us as we sing the final song? I don't know what God's saying to you through this message, but I pray that in his kindness he would grant us repentance, that we would look to him for forgiveness, for he alone is the one who can forgive our sins.
1: At the coming of the king, the same old. Can gather. Help us to live in light of the truth that Jesus Christ is our forgiveness of sins. Help us to live in light of your spirit who convicts us and in kindness
0: leads us to repentance. Lord, let us be a people who walks in your ways for your glory. We praise you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. Go with God. Thank you so much. Keep cool. And if you could help stack
1: the chairs in piles of five, that'd be greatly appreciated. Two. (laughs) Oh, <laughs>
0: Good job, guys. Thank you. Every <laughs> time. <laughs> Not bad at all. Sorry, I, I screwed up both of those beginnings of that. Oh, no. In my headphones, I have it so loud that when I play
1: that last part, I the I, I will. Just scream it. Wait,